Hello and welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon, and with me as always are Toby and Don. Hi guys. Hi Simon. Hey Simon. On today's show, we are continuing our series of shows on George W. Bush by looking at 9-11 and the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. But before we get properly into this topic and we start sort of diving into the detail of this, I just want to take a couple minutes to just chat with you guys and just kind of talk about your own experiences and your memories of, of this time period. Obviously, this is a little different than us talking about our our topics that take place in the 60s and 70s because we actually lived through this. And I know you guys are a little bit younger than me, so it's maybe not as as clear in your memory as maybe it is for myself, who was actually, you know, I actually worked in the George Bush administration during this time. Um, can you guys just let me, let me know what you guys think when you hear the terms, you know, the, the September 11th and the, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and the kind of time period that that, invokes. Vaughn, do you want to go first since you were actually in the States during this time? Sure. Um, so I was seven years old, like just recently turned seven. Um, and I was in second grade. And I remember the day pretty clearly. I remember my teacher um, kind of running out of the room. She got a phone call and just ran out of the room. And the principal came in a few minutes later and like took over our class. And later we found out that her daughter worked in one of the the towers. Um, and her daughter was fine. She, she survived. But that was a pretty kind of lasting memory for me about 9-11. Uh, but I do remember it. We went home um, after a couple hours because I also, I live in Pennsylvania where one of the planes crashed. Yeah. Um, so we were on lockdown for a little bit, but then they, they sent us home. Um, I don't exactly remember if I was told what happened at school. I think there were kind of rumors and we heard there was a plane crash somewhere, but we weren't really hundred percent sure what was going on. And I remember getting home and, um, my mom was there, which I thought was weird. Cause it was like the middle of the day. And she had it on in the living room um, on the TV. And that was the first time I think I saw the footage. Um, so that's that's a pretty kind of staple memory for me from <laughs> seven years old was this massively traumatic uh, world event. Um, and then I remember Mr. Rogers talking about it and telling us to look for the helpers and all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those are, those are kind of my stable memories about 9-11. The whole kind of concept of it, I think of ardent patriotism. Well, that's a contested term, isn't it? I think of ardent Americanism, we'll go with, and um, American flags everywhere my street specifically that I grew up on the police police commissioner lives on our street. So there are American flags on every single telephone post um, and light post on the street. And that, that came up, I think shortly after nine 11 um, when he was rerunning for police commissioner. So I just think of tons of American flags everywhere. 
yourself, Toby? Well, you know, I have the awkward uh, place of uh, trying to work out how old I was <laughs> at that time. Because, like, I was born in 1992, September. So I think I was, I think I was eight, but I'm not sure. So heading into September 22nd, 2002, I would have been nine. So this is September, mm-hmm. uh, this is 9-11. So I would have been eight, but in a, in a week, I would have been nine. Okay. Yeah. And that probably also feeds into the fact that, like, I was in a haze at this period. So I don't really, I, I know that it happened and, and people around me were like, oh, this is a big deal. It's a big deal. But, you know, I would like to say if I was older, I would have been angry about what happened because I, even from in that age, I internalized some sort of love and respect for America and the American people. And um, yeah, and I just, you know, I, I, it was natural. And, and, I, and I sort of saw the event the way I saw when uh, Pope John Paul died. It happened. Uh, certainly people talked about it, but I wasn't really that involved in the discussion. Adults were talking about it. And then I think as uh, Bush, you know, started to go into the war and, and, you know, the war on terror and finding Bin Laden, I attached the Bin Laden thing, thing to the Iraq thing because I think I was told on on, on TV that, Bin Laden and Saddam Hussein were co-conspirators somehow, mm-hmm. and they yep. were really linked. I didn't know why or how, you know, and and I and I know that Bin Laden as a character fascinated me because he was kind of like a supervillain, yeah, in a way that like no one was. He was like one guy in caves, like setting off bombs in like different countries. And like it was almost like a, it was almost like the the Ban- Banksy of terrorism. And so I thought like, oh, this is this is crazy. And so it was, and I think it was only until maybe like two thousand and seven, where I was like, no, this well, the war is fucked up, and uh, this this is terrible, it's terrible. What's happening? The Amer- you know, the American people don't seem to want it. Um, I think I was all I think as I grew older, I was always nominally against Tony Blair and his policies. And, uh, and I think my annoyance at Tony Blair was also attached to my disdain for, for the war, my growing disdain for the war and the pointlessness of it and, and the fact that it wasn't supported. And I think I grew more and more um, disgruntled with the use of military power in other countries and just felt like it, it just created quagmires as well. But, but again, it's like, this is a period in my life where I don't think I have f- fully cognizant of the issues mm-hmm. and I was developing my opinion as, a, as a sort of the world was developing it, it, uh, its opinion as well. So, yeah, I think that's my impression of this period. Yeah, um, I was 67 years old at this point. I was a senior legal aide for the president. No. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, I successfully helped him win Florida and the courts. 
and um, he was very thankful for that. Uh, no, I was I was twelve years old when this happened, and I remember it well. I was off school that day; I was unwell, and uh, my mum came through from the kitchen to say that there'd been a report of a, a plane hitting the tower in, in New York, and people thought maybe it was like an, an accident or, or something like that. And then, obviously, when the, the second plane hit then it was clear it wasn't and i i, I remember I, I have distinct sort of partial memories of of that of that day and of particular things happening and how i took in those events and how it was just kind of so shocking and it was it was just all you would talk about at school for the next you know days and weeks and months um and how things played out eventually with the iraq war I think I was relatively, um, well, I was very inexperienced, obviously, at 12 years old, but I, I guess I hadn't really f- figured out the nuances of, of political life at that point. And so by the time, uh, I remember a little bit later, around 2004, when that was, um, when the re-elections there were happening with George Bush, I, I do remember at the time thinking, oh, well, maybe George Bush should get re-elected because, like, why would you, like, change presidents, like, you know, while there's a war on and maybe he's he's actually what they need and all this kind of stuff, which is really funny to think about now, uh, considering, you know, how sort of you grew up and you, you, you sort of you learn from these experiences and you you, you understand politics more. Uh, but I, I do remember this sort of foggy haze of media as it was presented back then, both around 9-11 and with the Iraq war. And I, I even I still remember a, a distinct um uh, radio broadcast, uh, Radio One um, here in the UK, which is sort of younger people uh, radio station, uh, play popular music, and they have their news section in there. And I, I remember when, I think it was when we declared war on Iraq or when the invasion started, and I remember someone reporting and kind of giving sort of bite-sized news on it, and they were basically compared it to, it was like Man United were playing a a cup match against like a non-league team kind of thing and sort of phrased it in these terms that we could understand. But, it, you know, it's a football analogy in order to, to uh, bring across this sort of fact that Iraq's going to be, you know, completely devastated by this giant military force that's coming. And I remember at the time going, oh, great, you know, we'll win that then, that's good. And I'm just like, that's such a terrible way to, to try and like think about this human disaster which is about to fall in this country um but I, I do distinctly remember at the time you know it was it was trying to represent this idea that you know this country's off to war and we're you know sending our troops over there and you know we're going to win kind of thing and yeah obviously the way everything played out i don't think anyone would consider anything that happened over there any kind of victory in any kind of way um, so yes i i have distinct memories of of 9-11 and how things played out in the following years and it's kind of fascinating to think back as a case study uh both on media of that time but also just how young people will will take in media and the importance for media to truly represent what's going on not what you want not what a government kind of what wants to be presented um to to the to the wider population so yeah i've definitely got some uh distinct uh, memories and st- distinct I think the last last comment, last comment i would make uh is that it's, it's a bit like 
that uh, novel by James Joyce, the artist as a young man, as in like, I remember, and this is just a vague memory of my dad saying, like Bush, he, he needs to get his, his father to, to help him. He's just doing it because his father uh, hates Saddam Hussein. But, but I was so I was so distant from the conversation. Like I, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm someone who's you know quite combative in in arguments and and has a lot of opinions, a lot of wrong opinions, a lot of, you know opinions. Mm-hmm. I'm an opinionated person, but the whole thing was kind of in the in the distance. I think. Before we get into the the questions on this, let's start with some of the events of that day. Um, between 7.59 and 8.42 a.m., four commercial flights took off, two from Boston, one from Washington, D.C., and one from Newark, New Jersey, all headed for California. Over the course of the next two hours, all four planes were hijacked, with American Airlines Flight 11 crashing into the North Tower of the World Trade Center, United Airlines Flight 175 crashing into the South Tower of the World Trade Center, American Airlines Flight 77 into the Pentagon, and United Airlines Flight 93 crashing in southern Pennsylvania after a struggle on board between a team of hijackers and the flight's passengers. At 9.05 a.m., President George Bush, he was about to begin uh, reading uh, a book to elementary school students in Florida uh, when his chief of staff, Andrew Card, tells him that a, a second plane has crashed into the World Trade Center and says that America is under attack. 9.59 a.m. the South Tower collapses, and 20 minutes later the North Tower collapses. Later that evening at 8.30 p.m., President Bush addressed the nation from the White House and said, Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist attacks. Later that evening before bed, George W. Bush uh, journaled his thoughts and remarked, The Pearl Harbor of the 21st century took place today. We think it's Osama bin Laden. We think there are other targets in the United States, but I have urged the country to get back to normal. We cannot allow a terrorist thug to hold us hostage. My hope is that this will provide an opportunity for us to rally the world against terrorism. In total, 2,996 people died that day, including 19 hijackers, and 6,000 others were injured. Tens of thousands of people have reported long-term medical conditions such as respiratory disease or cancer as a result of inhaling the toxic dust from the collapsed World Trade Center buildings. It is also worth noting that on the morning of September 11th, the Pentagon's annual Global Guardian War Games was in full swing and three dozen real nuclear weapons were loaded on board intercontinental bombers in North Dakota, Missouri and Louisiana. When Bush left Florida on Air Force One amid fears the terrorists would take down the president's plane, he actually flew into the middle of the war games. Because of the inadequate communications, equipment and procedures, top US officials couldn't talk to each other or to anyone else, and Russian President Vladimir Putin wanted to speak to Bush to know why the US was preparing to DEFCON 3, but the White House couldn't put the, the call through and Bush was unable to receive any calls on Air Force One. Most of the top 10 people in the president's line of succession, including Vice President Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, either refused to follow the protocol and go to the designated secure sites, or were out the country, or were just simply never contacted. Education Secretary Rod Page, 16th in line in the White House, was left on the tarmac in Florida. He rented a car and drove back to Washington. 
So while the main events of the day are, of course, well known and the tragic events kind of known throughout history now, it's worth considering just how unprepared the highest forms of government were for an attack like this. Okay, so let's now look at what happened in the aftermath of these attacks. Vaughn, how did the American public and media react to the 9-11 attacks? Um, yeah, with horror, primarily. Um, it was It was a really emotional and traumatic day for a lot of people. Um, as I said earlier, I was seven years old, but it's a pretty core memory from my childhood. And it is for almost every American, I think. Um, to get a bit more specific in the direct aftermath of it, there were two or three kind of main threads to the response. So one was this public expression of patriotism um, or perceived patriotism that really hadn't been seen since, nine, uh, since Pearl Harbor. Um, so Bush saying that is, is kind of on point, I think. One of the kind of rallying phrases or, or popularized kind of cries was united we stand, um, which had already been a phrase for the U.S. for a long time, but it really started popping up everywhere uh, to promote like resilience and the American spirit and all of the kind of positive parts of Americanism. And as I said, the display of the American flag really, really ramped up after 9-11. Um, that's not just a personal memory of mine that I was sharing. That is something that happened, that they are everywhere now. And this, this past year, I was in the States for the uh, 20th anniversary of 9-11, and it was just American flags as far as the eye can see. Um, so, so those are two kind of immediate reactions. And then another is this, this rallying specifically for New York. Um, there was a really unprecedented level of respect and admiration for New York and specifically for um, the firefighters of New York and the New York Police Department, who were the first responders to 9-11. That's still something that we see now. Um, Rudy Giuliani, it's hard to believe, but he was person of the year um, in 2001 for his kind of response to 9-11. And that really kind of rippled throughout the country. The third response was a very negative one. Um, Immediately following the attacks, there were massive surges in harassment and hate crimes um, geared towards, quote, Middle Eastern looking people, um, particularly of Sikhs, which is interesting and really exposes the racism in the States because um, Sikhs wear turbans and Americans think that all Muslims wear turbans which is not true. And the Sikhs had nothing to do with 9-11. Um, but there was a major, major kind of hate crime response to um, anyone that they, that white people could justify having a hate crime against, pretty much. Um, and that really lends to poor education um, 
about the rest of the world and different people and um, non-white people specifically. In terms of the, the media response, the footage from 9-11 was shown everywhere all the time. Um, I remember seeing it for a very long time after the actual attacks on September 11th. And there's a critical theorist and um, cultural media kind of specialist in the States named Douglas, Douglas Kellner. And he wrote an article called 9-11 Spectacles of Terror and Media Manipulation. And in this article, he argues that 9-11 was a, quote, terror spectacle, <clears throat> meaning that the live coverage of the event was used both at the time and afterwards in exceptionally dramatic ways through the use of, quote, images and montage to catch attention, hoping thereby to catalyze unanticipated events that will spread further terror through domestic populations, end quote. Um, so Kellner says that September 11th looked like a disaster film after the actual day. And the, the implication of 9-11 being used as a, quote, terror spectacle is that it was repeated and shown excessively on television to keep the high emotions from the event particularly high for as long as possible while the Bush administration postured to respond. Um, Kellner compares 9-11 to Independence Day from 1994 and the Towering Inferno from 1975, implying this question of whether the media may have used tropes of Hollywood disaster films in their news coverage of the event, both during and after. Um, the setting of New York City, the symbolism of the World Trade Centers, the quote, novelty of hijacked airplanes, all lent credence to this idea of 9-11 as a terror spectacle uh, to kind of be used by the media for the consumption of average people. And I, I find this to be a very compelling argument Kellner also cites the repetition with which the events of September 11th were shown and kind of revisited and just played constantly. And like, think about that. Like, I remember this footage crystal clearly and I was seven. Um, People jumping out of buildings. Uh, that's what yeah. I remember. Well, I saw a lot of that. And, you know, the stuff that would be kind of snuff uh, film and you know, in other circumstances and other events. I saw a lot of that, I remember. Yeah, like it wasn't just the planes hitting the towers and then the towers falling. It was survivors being pulled from rubble and firefighters and police everywhere on every news channel for months and pundits discussing it over the footage and politicians speaking over the footage and news anchors emotionally talking about this like traumatic event that we all witnessed over the traumatic footage for months. And I, I do think it was used as a terror spectacle as Douglas Kellner says, which is really terrible. Yeah, that's a fascinating insight. Uh, as you guys have already said, I, the, the footage is so distinct and it, it's not just that you know the unbelievable sight or seeing the, the plane hit the tower it's everything that, that came afterwards and the the reactions from people and probably most of all for me i think the, the plumes of smoke that just cover mm. the the new york landscape um during and after afterwards it is um so distinct in 
you know, related to this particular event that, um, yeah, it, it really did, um, really just take over the media landscape and, uh, of course, was, you know, uh, the, the defining thing of, of that decade by, by far. Um, so um, I'd just like to, to sort of move on a little bit then. And uh, Toby, could you just tell us a little bit of how the Bush government dealt with the fallout of 9-11 and kind of what happened in the, the days and weeks following it? I think uh, immediately uh, when it happened, you know, Bush was reading the, the, the pet goat to a group of uh, children. And, um, you know, before he entered the classroom, he obviously knew, uh, you know, about the first plane. But when he found out about the second plane, he just sort of stopped, you know, had to think and... Um, and I think that that image was embalmed, especially between the 11th and the 14th of Bush not being sure, you know, um, the Republicans had some misgivings about him, whether he was, you know, the right man for the job, whether he could, you know, be lifted to this, to this stage uh, in his life, in the life of the world. But that moment was, I think, a, a, an incredibly significant moment for him uh, psychologically probably as significant as his, as his um, moment coming to Jesus. And uh, I think Bush saw 9-11 and he saw the, the war against terrorism uh, and fundamentally uh, religious, religious terms. Um, and uh, members of the Bush family said that, uh, he, you know, uh, George became more focused, uh, more decisive, um, you know, he views uh, this as the killing of, of Christians. Uh, members of the Bush family said, you know, he thought the, the killing of Christians was uh, really unsettling for him. And um, and as Christians, that we, you know, that, that there's a feeling towards striking back and um, having a view to striking back because of, of, of what had happened uh, immediately. Um, not only members of the national security uh, system, but members of actually the public um, on, on news radio stations like uh, Opie and Anthony in, in New York, people were saying it was it was Osama bin Laden, and there was a, a, a quick understanding that was diffuse. You know, it didn't really come from the CIA or the national security system. Everyone sort of knew it was uh, it was Osama bin Laden, and immediately. Bush is obviously having meetings with members of the national security team. But before that, he has the uh, Oval Office speech um, where he declares that um, we will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbored them. So already there was a framing that um, this was not just the war against, uh, against the specific hijackers and the people who had planned the event, but a global war against terrorism and nations and states that harbored uh, terrorists as well. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's a clear change in the focus of the presidency. Uh, Bush had expected to work on domestic policy. You know, he'd been fascinated by things like stem cell uh, research and the, the, the connection between Christianity and and um, science. And, and, and when those things do the things defer, but things had changed. Things have changed significantly. Um, these, you know, deliberate and deadly attacks, which um, which were carried out, um, Bush, uh, you know, said in a press conference on September the twelfth that this was 
a moment, a monumental struggle between good, good uh, versus evil. But I think his reticence at the beginning of this process, obviously, you know, with 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 Cheney and Rumsfeld, Bush had actually shown a lot of dynamism. He, you know, he wanted to be in Washington really quickly. Um, you know, he wanted to talk about it forcefully. You know, he'd, he'd, he'd said things while he was leaving the plane, like, oh, this is the, the site of war in the 21st century. He was becoming this wartime president, met- metamorphosizing into wartime president almost immediately. But the perception of Bush was not that he was someone who was, was, who was capable of, of, do- of doing this and, 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 and of taking on this, this stage at that, at that time. But um, Bush, uh, you know, he was at the on September the 14th, a national day of prayer and remembrance and, you know, in front of uh, members of Congress and the diplomatic corps and the world and the nation. And, uh, you know, he really commanded the moment. He seized the moment. Uh, People were heartened by his speech. Uh, They they were strengthened by it. And um, at, at the same time, Congress was considering, um, you know, whether or not to take other specific actions. And then after the, 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 the speech, uh, he goes on a plane and goes to the Javid, Jacob Javits Center in New York. And he spends two hours speaking individually with family members of the missing workers. Um, he spoke with every family. He was a he was a personal touch. He was heartening. He was he was Bush. He was a good old boy. He was he was easy to, to get along with. You know he he and um and people uh, you know talked with firefighters uh, and you know he was he had his bullhorn and people were saying well we can't hear you and and Bush said well uh, I hear you and uh, pretty soon. Um, the people who did this will hear us. And, and, you know, within those three days, Bush had really been able to galvanize the public and win them over. And um, Congress uh, authorized, um, a, you know, a necessary and appropriate force and an appropriate force against those nations, organizations or persons. Um, the Bush determined, planned, authorized, committed or aided the terrorist attack that occurred on September 11th, 2001, or harbors such organizations or persons in order to prevent any further acts of international terrorism against the United States by such nations, organizations, or persons. Obviously, this was quite sweeping. The vote was 420 to 1. There was one dissenting uh, member of Congress, and the and the, the dissenting person had said that, you know, was, uh, after they had made this dissent, they had received death threats and uh you know uh, attacks on their on their person and, and you know the, the speech was made and and and, and stated that this was not an you know attempt to have a misgivings about what had happened um you know and everyone is with the the people in 9-11 but the the sweeping powers that the bush administration was asking for from congress was seen uh, by some segments uh, of the media and and and, and political um, people in political power as too sweeping and 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 going overboard, uh, uh, but you know the the emotion of that period had led it to be you know there'd be a four hundred and twenty to one 
um, votes uh, in uh, Congress. And, um, you know, uh, Bush, clearly, he had shown a significant amount of um, strength in, in, in this time. Um, but already, those who were dissenting were, were being pushed to the side. Um, as part of the congressional vote, the CIA director presented a draft directive granting the agency uh, virtually carte blanche to go after terrorists world, worldwide without having to seek the president's case-by-case approval. Um, the order authorized the agency to conduct renditions, cyber attacks, kill, capture, and detain members of Al-Qaeda anywhere in the world. And um, it was slapdash. It was done really quickly. And, um, you know, but again, Congress was so happy to um, accede to uh, Bush's uh, wishes on this. And then there was an air air bombardment that lasted 12 days on October 19th um, by the first special forces team um, in Afghanistan. Myself, one thing I do, I'm trying to remember now, if I remember this at the time of I sort of came to it afterwards and sort of now sort of planting that memory on top of it. But I do think back to the um, sort of week following 9-11 and George W. Bush actually speaking out and, and trying to um, bring some healing and bring people together with regards um, sort of anti-Islamic feeling that, that there was in America. He gave a speech um, at the at the Islamic Center of um, of Washington DC on September 17th, 2001. And he kind of goes out his way to specifically um, make points that um, Islam is for peace and it's not for war and that, that these terrorists do not represent Islam. And he actually directly um, quotes the, um, the, the Quran at one point, he says in the long run, evil in the extreme will be at the end of those who do evil uh, for for that, that they rejected the signs of Allah and held them up to ridicule. Um, he also talks about, um, yeah, kind of America needing to come together and uh, basically sort of not, you know, not seek any ill, Ill will towards um, towards their uh, Muslim brothers. And um, it's an interesting thing to read when you think of all the things that come later with, you know, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq and, everything that kind of follows and how we ha- have the picture of kind of the, the atrocities that kind of happened with George W. Bush, n- not even just on, on the war on terror side, but other things that happened with the George Bush administration. And it, it, it's, um, it's an interesting counterpoint to maybe some of the sort of interpersonal skills that he had, as you were talking about, Toby, you know, someone who is wanting to kind of communicate and, and talk with his fellow Americans. And I suppose that's part of the reason why he was elected was that he was seen as someone who, you know, you could have a conversation with and and someone who, you know, had had interest in in, in bringing people together. And clearly that there was a a clear intent there for him to to speak to um, not just Muslims in America, but Muslims across the world as, as wanting to make sure that there wasn't sort of finger pointing and blame being handed out to uh, the, the Islam world in general. But then, of course, we know what, what happens later and uh, the war in Iraq and, uh, and everything else that follows and, um, you know, Guantanamo Bay and atrocities that happened there. So 
it's it's a re- really interesting duality to have between um someone whose policies and policy advisors who implemented such terrible things and that so often uh, targeted uh, Muslims and Muslim Americans and um, often did so without without any um, regard for for international rights and that kind of stuff. And then at the same time, you have a, a leader who is specifically calling out, um, you know, the, the sort of peace peaceful nature of Islam and how America needs to come together. And, and the language was, uh, I think, you know, if you compare it to uh, very very contemporary events in terms of Republican Party is almost woke, right? And Bush, mm-hmm. Bush absolutely, tried, yeah. you know, in in his own family in terms of Mexican Americans and um, with the um, Islamic community in America and outward in terms of public relations around the world, tried to emphasize, as you say, and obviously in the immediate aftermath of nine eleven, the uh, members of the Bin Laden family including Bin Laden's estranged brother, were, were allowed to leave the United States, right? Again, because the Bush administration anticipated that there might be attacks against them. So on that score, um, at least from a public relations standpoint, you know, it, it, he did what he could. Yeah, it, it is fascinating to think, as you say, Toby, that if George Bush gave that, that statement, um <laughs> After after an event kind of with the Republican Party of today, you know, you think of the, the extreme sort of QAnon people would be calling them out and that the Trumpers would be calling them out and he'd be, you know, ridiculed by um by the, the Republican Party as it is today, which is fascinating to think about. And just lastly, it's important to note that people um very close to Bush were a little bit whiplash by the nature of his language, mm-hmm. you know, uh, not not only the the congressional um directives but also you know uh this uh, wide spanning war against terrorism even donald rumsfeld in the very immediate period uh told the president that's the nc uh for the moment at least the american military was not prepared to take on terrorists the major military effort would take you know you know several months to um put together and members, members of the national security team were also um, saying very, very, very similar things. But Bush, um, it, it was, um, I think, almost calcifying in his mind uh, that this was going to be, a, a, you know, this kind of almost, you know, although the language was um, not uh, racialized or, you know, religiously explosive, you know, Bush perceived this as a, almost the crusade immediately and i think that's mm-hmm. important to note that kind of leads us nicely on to my next question for you toby which was how george w bush was seen by the public following 9 11 and um you can maybe tell us a little bit about that and whether or not he, he kind of got a spike in popularity as, as a result of of the fallout of, of the attacks well you know just just to uh re- reiterate some of the, the points i made uh before you know there there's this distinction between uh, how Bush was perceived uh, before uh, 9-11 mm-hmm. as, you know, a little bit of a blank slate, uh, considered by uh, many people to be kind of a centrist Republican, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they had this compassionate conservatism, um, political plank and po- policy, 
uh, into into his presidency, he was obviously he was going to try to put together No Child Left Behind, which was perceived by then back then as as, as uh, centrist. He was focusing on very small issues uh, before, uh, but you know some people had misgivings about you know whether he could you know step to this job, whether he was capable of it, and uh, clearly I think in the first you know few days between September the 11th and September 14th, he showed. Uh, Republicans and the world that he, you know, could be this uh, wartime uh, president, and uh, as as we know, his approval rating uh, went up uh, significantly um, because of um, what he had done, what he had done in the, the Jacob Jav- Javits Center uh, with with the with the families, um, you know, how how he had conducted himself. So yeah, um, publicly. Uh, just to reiterate, yeah, um, he is, is certainly his um, his stock really improved with the American people, certainly. Absolutely. Um, I think what's kind of interesting to think about is if George W. Bush had taken on a presidency and taken on a time period different to this or in an alternative universe where a 9-11 doesn't happen and... As you say, Toby, you know, is he, is he a president who is maybe known? For, I mean, we've we've got the sort of financial collapse that comes a few years later, and even the economy at this time is, isn't uh, doing particularly particularly great heading into say the 2004 election. So there there are other things going on that would obviously influence how we see George W. Bush. But the the what happened on 9/11 basically laid out the flaws of. George W. Bush as a president and those people around him. And, you know, we, we eventually lead into the Iraq war and all the kind of abuses of power that, that come there, as you kind of just touched upon a few minutes well, ago. Well, I would say that uh, if you go all the way back, because like <laughs> in the election, obviously Bush was the Dove candidate, right? He was talking about, well, Clinton had gone too far mm-hmm. in his intervention in, in Kosovo. They stayed there. You know all, all of this, and um, you know, not for regime change explicitly stated, but you know you can look at that. But then go all the way back to 1997, and there's an idea that Bush and uh, other members of people who who become part of the administration, you know, were uh, absorbing things from the new the you know, project for the new American century. And the project for the new American century was explicitly stating that uh, there should be re- regime change um, in Iraq and uh, thinking about prospects in 2000 for wars uh, in the Middle East as well. And I think it's not, you know, I don't think Bush and the people around him uh, were that far removed from, from that. Um, obviously, uh, this isn't um, Saddam Hussein yet, but obviously they had been the, the threat against the life of H.W. Bush. And um, uh, Bush had uh, taken, uh, George, George W. Bush had taken that quite personally as well. So there were, there were a lot of, there was an intellectual milieu that was uh, ready and anticipating a situation like this arising and uh, and I think uh, one that hopes that it could take advantage of it. So Bush, you know, he, he explicitly stated, I expected to, you know, my presidency to be the domestic policy. But um, 
but you know he was fascinated by the by, by the idea of the war and uh, and he you know he said the, the deliberate and deadly attacks which were carried out yesterday against our country were war and acts of terror they were acts of war this will be a monumental struggle of good versus evil uh, but good will prevail so like uh, immediately the psychology of the wartime president takes over but there are precursors uh, around the Republican Party, especially with neoconservatives, which which I don't think Bush was that far away from, uh, who who wanted this this kind of contact between you know America and um, and particular states and uh, organizations in the Middle East. Absolutely. Um, so just just to finish on this point, then, so prior to to nine eleven, um, George W. Bush was pulling around about. 51, 52% and looking at the Gallup poll um, that we have available to us. Following that, following 9 of 11, he jumps up to 86% and then uh, another few days later, he jumps up to 90%, which is a astronomical figure for, for any president. After that, it does decline over, over time, but it does shoot up back again up to 71% in 2003. And after that, sort of steady decline until... Um, he's hitting the 30s, uh, and in fact, at one point at the end of his presidency in 2018, he's at 25, which is, you know, again, historically very low number. So it does kind of give you the um, the shockwave, the, the jump that he receives um, post 9-11, uh, as you mentioned, Toby. Um, let, let's move on a little bit then. So um, after that, um, as I'm sure you guys are, everyone's aware, the... Um, the attention uh, went to um, sort of getting the people who did this, as it was being phrased, and uh, fighting terrorism. Um, so that kind of leads us to the war in Afghanistan. And uh, Vaughn, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Operation Enduring Freedom and um, how the invasion of Afghanistan played out? Yeah, so Operation Enduring Freedom was the code name for the war on terror um, because Americans love two things. And that's the word freedom without any kind of acknowledgement or regard for what that actually means or the benefits for other people's freedom outside of the US. Um, and they love waging wars on vague, undefinable concepts. This was the Top Gun so, presidency. Yes. <laughs> um, so Bush, said in a speech uh, explaining the war on terror in September 2001 that, quote, our enemy is a radical network of terrorists and every government that supports them, as you guys have both said. Um, this effectively meant that there was no real plan or target, um, or rather that they had a couple targets, but they were keeping it open to whoever they could fill into that category. Um, it was a really convincing cover story for the U.S. government and military to kind of exert their influence over the rest of the world by manipulating the rest of the world into thinking that that we were hurt and we were fearful um, and we had to get the people who hurt us. So the war on terror was originally focused on countries associated with al-Qaeda, but this eventually slipped uh, and the war on terror was used colloquially and as a kind of buzzword for a lot of military operations everywhere. 
Um, on October 7th, 2001, Bush announced the start of airstrikes targeting Al-Qaeda and the Taliban in Afghanistan. And Operation Enduring Freedom was primarily concerned with the war in Afghanistan, but it also referred to counterterrorism operations in other countries, such as the Philippines uh, and several countries in the Trans-Sahara region. Um, in terms of the invasion of Afghanistan, uh, as I said, Operation Freedom or Enduring Freedom officially started on October 7th, but the CIA was already operational by September 26th. So like 15 days after 9-11, they were scouting in Afghanistan. Uh, within a few weeks, special forces teams working with the CIA and the Northern Alliance uh, in Afghanistan captured several cities from the Taliban and forced the Taliban to retreat in several areas of the country. Uh, by November, the Taliban had lost control of most of the country. And through all of this, the UK was a key ally in the invasion and subsequent operations in Afghanistan. By February 2002, 16 other countries had joined in some way contributing to the incursion. Most members of Al-Qaeda and the Taliban escaped into Pakistan or rural regions or mountainous regions uh, of Afghanistan and evaded capture. But the U.S. and Afghan units, with some help from the U.N., maintained security in Kabul, the capital city of Afghanistan, and surrounding areas. In December of 2001, the Taliban government had been toppled, and a conference was held in Bonn, Germany, to decide who would lead the country, selecting Hamid Karzai to head the Afghan interim administration. Um, the invasion is considered a, quote, striking military success, end quote. Fewer than 12 U.S. soldiers died between October 2001 and March 2002 in the kind of first phase of the war in, in Afghanistan, and approximately 15,000 Taliban were killed or taken prisoner. Um, Karzai is also said to have been a respected and legitimate leader in the, in the region, but the failure to capture bin Laden or negotiate with the Taliban is considered a huge detractor for the invasion. Yeah, and it, it was uh, considered a huge, uh, huge, huge success by by Bush um, on November the 27th, 14 days after the fall of Kabul. General Tommy Franks received a telephone call from Rumsfeld uh, saying, General Franks, um, the president want, wants you to look at options for Iraq. Uh, what is the status of your planning? So, you know, they, they considered this to be a, a huge success and uh, we're, mm -hmm. we're planning for future uh, future heights, I suppose. <laughs> Another one off the list, yeah. Um, can you just, Vaughn, can you tell us a little bit more about kind of what followed after that and, and how the Afghanistan war, war sort of played out um, for the next three or four years? Yeah. Um, so they had this kind of initial quote, success in invading Afghanistan. But as I said, the war on terror was a vague concept um, and an excuse to imperialize the region, which we can say retrospectively. Allegedly, the Bush administration was against nation building as a goal of the war on terror. But the longer they stayed in Afghanistan and literally installed a leader, uh, they were kind of doing that. 
And Bush gave in in April 2002 and announced his desire to rebuild Afghanistan by instilling a democracy. Between 2002 and 2004, some members of the Taliban reached out to Karzai to negotiate several times, but the U.S. was opposed to negotiations and blacklisted all leaders of the Taliban who could offer a deal. Uh, during the same period and into 2005, Taliban forces were reorganizing and planned a resurgence. So at this point, the coalition of U.S., Afghan, NATO, and non-NATO forces started blundering, and their intelligence was proved faulty on numerous occasions. Popular support for the Taliban was growing, and the coalition's control in the region was faltering. Uh, leading to numerous civilians being killed, including uh, many at a wedding that was misidentified as a Taliban gathering. And just every tragic mistake led to higher recruitment numbers for the Taliban and um, increasingly less or decreasingly uh, trust in the Afghan government and U.S. presence. In late 2004, the Taliban leader Mohammed Omar announced an insurgency against, quote, America and its puppets to regain the sovereignty of our country, end quote. Despite the presidential election of 2004 um, in Afghanistan being a prominent target for the Taliban, Karzai was elected and the country was renamed the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. Throughout 2004 and 2005, the U.S. ramped up its aggressive advances. For instance, in late June through mid-July 2005, uh, U.S. Navy SEALs carried out Operation Red Wings in the Kunar province, intending to disrupt local Taliban. Um, and ultimately, they did drive the Taliban from the province. So there were, there were staggering successes. Um, in military operations, but there were also a ton of mistakes. And by the end of 2005, the Taliban had regained control in several villages, largely by popular support of people who were looking for stability and aid that was not coming from the US or the Afghan government. Um, the Afghan government was in a very weak position and it was underfunded and undermanned uh, and the military was really not up to par. The U.S. tried to establish an army for Afghanistan, but really kind of half-assed it and left the whole country open to this resurgence of the Taliban. Um, so any real kind of gains that you could say were won in the initial invasion in 2001 were absolutely lost by 2005. Thank you for that, Vaughn. Um, yeah, we will no doubt talk um, a little bit more about Afghanistan as we will about Iraq um, in a later episodes uh, when we sort of cover um, sort of the George W. Bush presidency as kind of a, a later step, uh, sort of a later review of kind of how, how things, um, how, how his legacy can be kind of viewed and, and how 
um, the wars kind of played out beyond the, the first first term election um, that were the time period that we're looking at now. And just to and get into the just the, the, this the psychology and the mood of the time, uh, Bush has the State of the Union in, in 2002, and he says North Korea is a regime arming with missiles and weapons. Our, our war against terror is only the beginning. Uh, Iran aggressively pursues these weapons and exports terror. Iraq continues to flaunt its hostility towards America and support terror. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world. By seeking weapons of mass destruction, these regimes pose a grave and continuing danger. The price of indifference will be catastrophic. Toby, do you want to take us into... um how sort of how we moved on to Iraq then and how the Bush administration kind of well, the pretext that they sort of gave for war and the, the reason behind invading Iraq and just kind of touch on that a little bit more. Well, I think um, the public opinion uh, or on regarding Iraq, uh, I think they were supportive of, of Bush, the, the early Bush administration uh, talks, um, you know, uh, against Iraq and, and Saddam Hussein, but I think public opinion was unsure whether or not Bush had uh, made his case uh, sort of clearly enough. So, you know, Bush, he, he you know, he personalized the, the, the foreign affairs um, uh, issue between um, Saddam Hussein and himself and Saddam himself had seemed to personalize the war between himself and the Bushes. Uh, Suzanne saw it that he, he had murals poking fun at Bush, um, Bush senior at one of the, as his, his hotels and um, former Bush remains of opinion that he uh, made the, he, he, but he did uh, former Bush did uh, rem remain of the opinion that he had made the right decision uh, during the Gulf war to leave um, Saddam in power, but beginning in January 2002, the U.S. Uh, military began quietly expanding uh, its bases in Qatar, um, expecting um, the potential of attacking the Iraq, uh, Iraqi government. But Bush delivered, obviously, his, his axis of uh, evil speech uh, before the nation. Uh, and then many in the Bush family had come to the conclusion uh, that there was going to be a war. A member said that George doesn't say he's going to do something and then um, not uh, commit to it. Um, and I think it, it, I think at that point it it, it become uh, more and more clear that uh, Bush was uh, seeking to um, to start a campaign against the the, the Saddam Hussein. Um, administration and uh, I, I think at first the the Bush administration uh, especially on the the news channels uh, a number of the news channels were, were trying to depict the the Saddam Hussein administration as being uh, you know creating WMDs and uh, using them 
and um, it, that that they had plans to use WMDs. Uh, Cheney, Rumsfeld, Bush were going on all the the news channels to to to, to say this. Um, Rumsfeld uh, said was saying things uh, on the Pentagon press to the Pentagon press room that um, when asked the question, um, you know, you said that uh, defense is a good offense. Uh, is this the first time in U.S. history that we, we're going to have a preemptory attack from Southfield? If your goal was to stop um, terrorism, you cannot stop it by defense. Um, uh, on March the 21st, 2002, and at a White House uh, pr pr press briefing, um, Rumsfeld made uh, similar comments. Uh, when asked, you know, after Cheney had gone to, uh, on he, Cheney had gone on a trip to a number of different countries to try to gather support for the Bush administration's perspective, as I was saying, uh, and, he, and, and he had even gone to uh, neighboring countries to Iraq and found out that people like Crown Prince Abdullah and the King Abdullah were against this. But when asked on the news channels, uh, Cheney would say, well, no, I've had private conversations with these people and they are uh, they are concerned. He would say if they were against it, he, Cheney would say they were concerned when asked uh, or meet the press. Uh, the the UN says they uh, they are not ready to uh, take preventary action. Uh, Cheney would say, "Well, that's not what I'm hearing in the meetings on Face the Nation." Um, when again they said the Arab leaders are not uh, interested in in, um, in 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 a conflict with Saddam Hussein, they think it's going to destabilize the region. Uh, that's not and Cheney said, "Well, that's not what they're they're saying in in public." Um, and, and again and again, uh, you know, when uh, Wolf Blitzer on CNN or Rumsfeld doesn't seem to be much support by the allies in Europe, Rumsfeld said, I'm not going to get into that. And if uh, the, the US is capable of, of doing something, it's going to do something. The, 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 the press secretary of uh, the Bush administration said um, Saddam is a cause for concern because he's holding uh, weapons of uh, of mass destruction and uh, and he has uh, again for several years pushed back against the attempts to uh, to search and inspect the 230 facilities that they have in order to see whether or not um, these weapons of mass destruction um, are, are are in hand. So again, the the Bush administration was uh, creating the sense um, that there was going to be uh, a need for regime change because Saddam Hussein had uh, what they said he had uh, weapons of uh, mass destruction um, in, in his uh, capabilities. And uh, in terms of the media, you know, the, the, the new conservatives had been saying for, you know, since um, the documents in 1997, the, the project for a new American century, that they were proposing, you know, to take on the Saddam Hussein regime, prospectively because of the possession of uh, of, of weapons, um, and I think that's really what they were saying to the media. 
and I think the media were kind of falling for it. You know, uh, Dan Rather said, Dan Rather, you know, God bless Dan Rather, but he said um, in 2003 that uh, the spirit is best captured. Uh, George Bush is the president. Uh, he makes the decisions. And, you know, as just one American, whenever he wants me to line up, just tell me where. You know, and that, and that, that was kind of the um, impression um, many people were giving, although there was, as I just um, outlined on a number of different news channels, uh, the, the, the structure of the questions will say, well, the UN is against this, or the leaders of neighboring countries are not completely settled on uh, the Bush administration's perspective. Uh, Bush um, proxies would go on these news, news channels and uh, would, would either lie about the meetings or lie about uh, WMDs uh, repeatedly. Um, there was a Newsweek execu um, exclusive uh, at the time that said that uh, there was, I think at the time there was a Newsweek um, exclusive uh, that that's, uh, was regarding the, 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 the WMDs and uh, whether or not um, specific uh, assets that the Bush administration had captured uh, previously had declared that there were WMDs. Um, but uh, what, what the Bush administration did, did was they did not react to this Newsweek uh, piece. Um, on MSNBC, Phil Donahue had a show where he was criticizing uh, the Bush administration. Phil Donahue was fired. Um, there, and there was a, a continued amount of direct censorship on uh, news channels uh, and, uh, and when people would step out of line. Uh, by news executives, and there was this continued um, on, on the on the level of media in terms of creating an argument view by the Bush administration that, uh, despite actually um, information within the Bush administration, um, a number of generals have come out and said, you know, when uh, Rumsfeld was saying that there was WMDs, and we had seen that in the in the intelligence, people who had actually read the intelligence were saying, what well, weren't saying, but were exasperated when they heard that because they were close to the intelligence. The intelligence was not saying that uh, Saddam Hussein had WMTs, but the Bush administration was declaratively saying that the uh, Saddam Hussein administration had WMTs, uh, despite lacking the evidence uh, to say that. They were pushing that on the media. They were, they were grilled to some extent by the media in terms of the questions, but, um, the, but the media were, were carrying the Bush's story. Bush, what Bush did in terms of the media was, uh, if you compare the Bush administration to the Clinton administration previously and to the H.W. Uh, Bush administration, Bush actually had a third of the press conferences that the Clinton administration had. The reason why was because they didn't want to go in front of journalists and be grilled on specific parts of their their agenda, especially regarding to 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 Iraq and, and Saddam Hussein. And that was one tactic that they were using uh, in the media. But a, a, another tactic that they, they were using in the media is that they could rely on the fact that 
the media was very supportive as as, you know, as with the Dan Rather with the Dan Rather quote they were not grueling that far they were they were quite supportive people like Phil Donahue who who was speaking out were fired um there was the 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 Brad, uh, there was the Scowcroft um comments in the media that were made uh you know former former HW Bush allies were talking in the media saying that they didn't think that uh, Saddam Hussein had WMDs and that even if he did, that uh, the Bush administration's preemptive tactic of actually going there and having war was wrong, that it was going to destabilize the uh, Saddam Hussein administration. Colin Powell, although Colin Powell was also going on the news channels, Face the Nation and all this, and, and saying that uh, Saddam Hussein was a threat, he was voicing um, very close to Bush that um, he, he thought that it was going to destabilize the administration. James Baker, James Baker, who uh, worked for H.W. Bush um, and actually lived close to H.W. Bush, was, was saying publicly in the media that he thought that this was wrong and it was going to destabilize the region. H.W. Bush himself, in conversations with, with George, was saying he hoped that there would not be a war and that uh, cooler heads will prevail and, the, and on the diplomatic side, um, you know, they, they would come to a solution. And, uh, and, it, and it is as you well believed at the time that H.W. Bush himself opposed um, the ag aggressive nature of, of the war. So the Bush administration was, was succeeding with its tactics um, in creating this argument, it was succeeding in spreading it through, through the media. And there were just pockets of uh, opposition uh, coming from some conservative voices who, who had a, a realist perspective on foreign, foreign policy. And then there was obviously some pockets of um, very uh, left-wing voices, uh, not really coming from CNN or MSNBC, or, or, or certainly one coming from Fox News, but on the margins, who were also voicing um, some disapproval. But um, the the argument was was getting through to the American people, and they were steadily becoming convinced by the um, the Bush administration. So, just on on Iraq then. Uh, Vaughn, can you tell us uh, a bit about the authorization for use of military force uh, against Iraq resolution of 2002? Yeah. Um, the authorization for use of military force against Iraq resolution of 2002 was exactly what it sounds like. Um, <laughs> it was a joint resolution passed by Congress in October 2002, authorizing U.S. armed forces to invade uh, Iraq in what would become uh, known as Operation Iraqi Freedom. Again, very, very American sounding operation. <laughs> um, the resolution names many factors in justifying the authorization, including but not limited to Iraq's, quote, brutal repression of its civilian population, end quote. It's, quote, capability and willingness to use weapons of mass destruction against other nations and its own people, end quote. Um, Iraq's hostility towards the U.S., such as with the 1993 assassination attempt on George H.W. Bush, Iraq's noncompliance with the 1991 ceasefire agreement, and Iraq's, quote, continuing to aid and harbor 
international terrorist organizations, end quote, including members of Al-Qaeda, um, among other things. So the resolution passed in the House with an overwhelming Republican majority, as you'd expect, and a split Democratic vote, um, totaling 296 ayes and 133 nays, only six of which were Republicans and one independent who was, as you would again guess, Bernie Sanders. Um, in the Senate, the vote was again split among Democrats with a Senate total of 77 yeas to 23 nays. Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden both voted in favor of the resolution. Uh, one common known amendment to it, there were, there were several, several um, amendments suggested and probably the best known one or the one that we hear about most frequently is the Lee Amendment, uh, which sought to have the US work through the United Nations to seek to resolve the matter of ensuring that Iraq was not in fact developing weapons of mass destruction with peaceful measures. Uh, but that amendment, again, as you would guess, obviously failed, um, 72 to 355. So we could just kind of go to war with the authorization. You tell us a bit about the accusations made against the Bush administration with regards to using the immediate events of 9-11 as an opportunity to invade Iraq. Yeah, um, so the, the Bush administration claimed that the intent of the invasion was to, quote, disarm Iraq of weapons of mass destruction, to end Saddam Hussein's support for terrorism, and to free the Iraqi people, end quote. Um, both the U.S. and the U.K. claimed that Saddam Hussein was developing weapons of mass destruction. In February 2003, Secretary of State Colin Powell spoke before the U.N. to promote this kind of like urgency um, for invading Iraq. And he claimed that Iraqis visited Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan and provided training to Al Qaeda members. Um, and also that Iraq harbored a terrorist network headed by an Al-Qaeda operative. Um, Colin Powell said at the UN, quote, indeed the facts and Iraq's behavior show that Saddam Hussein and his regime are concealing their efforts to produce more weapons of mass destruction. Every statement I make today is backed up by sources, solid sources. These are not assertions. What we're giving you are facts and conclusions based on solid intelligence, end quote. And then in 2016, he said that he had not written the speech and his office had not written the speech, but it was in fact written by the vice president's office. Um, allegedly at the time he was told it was written in the White House, but it was not. So those are kind of the justifications. That's what the administration said. But as I said in the resolution, there were these extra claims of what Iraq had been doing back in the 90s, uh, or that they were in violation of um, the 1991 ceasefire agreement. So there were some kind of criticisms that the Bush administration just wanted to invade Iraq and kind of finish some things that had been started in George H.W. Bush's administration. Um, some of the other critiques are that um, 
Iraq had a secular government at the time, but the U.S. claimed they had ties to al-Qaeda. And as it has been said already, al-Qaeda is an Islamic fundamentalist terrorist group. It's not the name for anyone in the Middle East uh, or anyone who is Muslim. It's an extremist religious organization, and Bush's administration was kind of hoping people didn't put that together, uh, I guess. And rightly so in a lot of cases for a lot of Americans. But most importantly, the, the justification of weapons of mass destruction was unfounded. Um, Scott Ritter, a former U.S. military intelligence officer and a then United Nations weapons inspector in Iraq, uh, who previously was wanting to go to war with Iraq in 1998, Scott Ritter was against this invasion um, on the premise of finding weapons of mass destruction. He said that they were not there. And he had the kind of experience and expertise to say that they were not there. Um, and in support of that, all of the investigations after the invasion failed to produce any evidence of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Um, throughout all of this, Bush was also accused of being indifferent to the suffering of civilians caused by the invasion and the eventual uh, occupation of Iraq. So that's also kind of counter to that, those like immediate post 9-11 days where, where Bush was this empathetic and um, more humanly kind of figure and, and talking about it's, it's very specific people. That thread in the public of, of almost respecting him for his, his clarity on the issue, um, that really dissolves after a number of years, um, and especially with the invasion into Iraq, and people saw him as, as being quite indifferent to it. Yeah, and then uh, just to go, go into this a little further, at the UN there was... Um, indifference to the Bush administration's position from a number of different countries. Uh, Bush had decided to go to war, but the U United Nations coalition um, assembling for the Security Council Resolution 1441 uh, was really was really cr crumbling. A German foreign minister, uh, Fischer, said, we are greatly concerned that a military strike against the regime in Baghdad would involve considerable and unpredictable risks for the global fight against terrorism. Iraq has complied fully with all relevant resolutions and military action would have this disastrous uh, consequences, um, fearing the crumbling of the supports at, at the UN. Uh, Bush actually made a phone call to the French president the day after the Security Council meeting. Bush implored Chirac to take action. Uh, Jackie's said the president said Saddam is digging in. He's lying to the world and he's lying to the inspectors. We can't let him think the UN is a paper tiger. Uh, Chirac didn't reply. And then Bush said, uh, Gog and Manog are at work in the Middle East. Uh, big, big Biblical prophecies are being fulfilled. This confrontation is willed by God, who wants to use this conflict to erase the, his people's enemies before a new age begins. Uh, obviously, Chirac had no idea what uh, Bush was, 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 was talking about, but it further calcify the idea from uh, Chirac that uh, this was really personal for Bush 
and Bush wasn't thinking rationally. And he, he was say, saying this is a, you know, reciting biblical writings, uh, de- determining Bush's decision about uh, going to war in the Middle East. Um, weapons inspect- inspections would never be sufficient uh, for Bush if the president believed um, that this was some sort of a biblical prophecy or, or biblical calling uh, for him. And so obviously, the uh, second interim report uh, was delivered and um, they searched 250 inspectors, visited 230 sites, and they did not find any uh, weapons of, uh, of mass destruction. Isn't it interesting to think about the concept of a, of a president being led by their religion and by religious philosophy that takes them into a war and how different that would be if they weren't Christian um, and how we kind of see the extreme Christian right that forms over the, the, the next couple of decades, which is very much in force now. And to, to think that, um, you know, Think how differently this would be if, if America were to ever um, have a, a Muslim leader or a Sikh leader or, or someone else um, in charge of the country and for them to kind of openly speak out about their religion, guiding them and their religion sort of taking them, taking them into war. I think that's a fascinating thing to think about in, in contrast to what we see with George Bush and what, what we've seen um, over the last 20 years or so with the Republican Party. But even the, though... Um... This was clear from uh, France and from Germany. Bush did manage to convince Tony Blair uh, to side with him. Uh, mm-hmm. Even Tony Blair's own attorney general at the time said that the resolution 1441 was not um, good enough for Britain to really to, to side with uh, the United States. But uh, mm-hmm. Tony Blair still pursued that. Um, on March the 7th, 2003, the United States, Great Britain, and Spain introduced a resolution in the Security Council demanding that Iraq surrender all weapons of mass destruction by March the 17th or face military action. Um, and then Bush decided it would be useful to meet Tony Blair once more and uh, joined by the Spanish president. Um, he was able to convince Tony Blair that uh, he needed to he needed to move on this and to get the, the British on side, um, despite some uh, misgivings. Um, and then, obviously, Tony Blair had a vote uh, in 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 Parliament, which he was scared of not being able to survive. There was a lot of um, down ballots. Um, pain to the Labour Party in, in 2005 because of of, of this, but uh, Tony Blair was convinced and he did uh, join uh, Bush um, in this uh, endeavour. Yeah, it, it is fascinating now to think back to the, the special relationship between America and UK at this time, and specifically between um, <laughs> Peter and, and George Bush, you know, um, our, our sort of centre-left um, supposedly politician in, in Great Britain and Tony Blair and uh, centre-right um, politician supposedly in, in George W. Bush and the, the pairing that they they sort of took up arms together to take on the, these wars and 
destroyed their legacy in a way, which is, I think, especially true for for Tony Blair in the UK, who basically became a pariah on the left and the right. And um, yeah, it's a fascinating pairing to, to, to think about. And um, they, they were very much a double act. And um, yeah, it was a very strange time to, to be in the UK and sort of <laughs> look at how Tony Blair was buddying up with George Bush. Yeah, fascinating. Um, it, well, that leads us nicely into talking about the, the actual Iraq war itself. Um, so, uh, Toby, can you just give us a, a brief summary of events on the Iraq war up to and including Saddam Hussein's capture in December 2003? Yeah, so despite, despite the, the failures at the UN, Bush did have uh, congressional support for an attack on Iraq at, at 10.16 in the evening of March 19th. Bush addressed the nation from the Oval Office. Uh, He said that this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operation to disarm Iraq. On my orders, coalition forces began striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's abilities to wage war. Uh, He spoke for four minutes. He said by, by removing Saddam Hussein, he was lessening the threat of another terrorist attack on American soil. Uh, just as Bush spoke, the forces of the Central Command launched their attack. Unlike the 1991 Gulf War or, or even Afghanistan itself, um, they ordered the air and ground offensive to begin simultaneously. By doing so, they hoped to achieve tactical surprise and aided by the Allies on the ground. It was 145,000 troops with 500 tanks and armored vehicles moved in three separate thrusts. Uh, the British 1st Armored Division headed for the southern city of Basra, and the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force moved to the capture the ore fields in the 3rd Infantry Division, followed by the 22nd and 101st Airborne moved in the direction of Baghdad. The attack was titled Operation Iraqi Freedom, and according to generals, the name had been chosen by Bush himself. The goal was not conquest, not oil, but freedom for 26 million Iraqis, said Frank. On the eve of the attack, um, Frank told Wolfowitz that he did not want to be bothered by the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff operating enduring freedom in Afghanistan had been nitpicked by the service chiefs and the Joint Staff did not want um, the reluctance of, of um, the Joint Chiefs uh, involved in this. Um, the American media called the attack shock and awe the public were fascinated by television coverage um, as, as the Franks Blitzkrieg covered north. But for most of the world, this was a war of American aggression. Uh, and it's important when you go back to the, 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 the scuttlebugs at the UN, um, at the United Nations, the French foreign minister Dominique de, de Vapin portrayed the choice between war and peace as between two uh, diametrically opposed visions of the world. To those who choose to to force and force and and uh, can I uh, the the UN French Foreign Minister Dominique de Vapin portrayed the, the choice between war and peace as between two diametrically opposed visions of the world. To those who choose force and think that they can resolve the world's complexities through swift and preventive action, we offer in contrast determined action over time. 
the outbreak of force in this area, which is so unstable, can only exacerbate the tensions and fractures on which the terrorists already feed. Um, but while, while he was saying this, Frank's Brixley continued armored columns from the 3rd Infantry Division reached Baghdad International Airport at midday on April 4th. Um, fearing some defense uh, from Baghdad, Frank ordered his armored commanders to make a thunder through the city. The purpose was to either catch the enemy off guard or to overwhelm him at force. At dawn on April the 5th, armored columns of, of 50 tanks and armored vehicles roared into Baghdad at speeds up to 45 miles an hour. Iraqi defenders were stunned. The American vehicles were virtually impervious to Iraqi small arms fire, supporting aircraft and helicopter gunships, neutralized enemy armor, and the tanks drove to the, into the center of the city and then back to the airport. The battle lasted eight hours. Only one tank was lost, and Iraqi casualties were put as 2,000. Um, and, and the Iraqi morale was really really broken. A second thunder run on April 7th comprised 130 tanks and armored vehicles, and this time uh, they remained in the city. The, the American military had taken Baghdad. The thunder run uh, exhibited the U.S. Army at its best. The, the maneuver was boldly conceived and superbly executed. Uh, organized resistance ended meekly. Two days later, Saddam's statue um, at the Frido Square in downtown Baghdad was toppled and the Iraqi dictator went into hiding. On April the 15th, as Iraqi mobs continued the looting of museums and government ministries, Bush met with the National Security Council to review plans for withdrawing American troops from Iraq. A large uh, post-hostility force should might not be necessary, they, they perceived. Uh, during the 2000 election, Bush had obviously criticized open-ended peacekeeping efforts um, pursued by Bill Clinton. Um, at, at Frank's recommendation, uh, Bush approved the drawdown of American forces. The combat unit should pull out within 60 days. New units would arrive to help stabilize the country, but would stay only 120 days. By August, less than 30,000 um, troops would be in Iraq. The, the Bush... Um, administration uh, assumed that a functioning Iraqi government within 30 to 60 days uh, could be put together. Uh, Saddam had been ousted and fighting was all over. Um, people, you know, said that, you know, you should uh, declare the clear victory and, and, and Bush moved very, very quickly to do so. Um, uh, Bush um, was enthralled by the idea of uh, was uh, of the idea of actually going on the USSS Abraham Lincoln, a uh, nuclear-powered uh, aircraft carrier, which was returning to port in San Diego after a few months in the Persian Gulf. Uh, Bush uh, loved the idea, you know, as a former, former National Guard pilot, um, he loved the idea of the cameras, uh, the 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 details. Uh, the victory ceremony was set for May the 1st. Bush arrived at the Naval Air Station in the North Island in San Diego Bay in the early afternoon and met his pilot, Commander John Lucia, the, the senior aviator of the Abraham Lincoln's Viking squad. 
um, Bush sat right at the front um, at the pilots. Bush climbed to the cockpit, grinning from ear to ear, wearing his uh, combat fatigues. And, um, you know, he was very happy with, uh, with, the, with the situation. Um, and uh, Bush was scheduled to spend five minutes on deck, but stayed for 30. It was a joyous moment, um, uh, he later said. And uh, Bush went below, ate with the enlisted personnel, changed into business suit and tie, returned to the flight deck, deck to speak. The resident stood in the middle of a vast open space. 5,000 members of the crew arranged around him with a giant banner proclaiming mission accomplished, hanging behind him. It was <laughs> dusk and the lightning had had that special glow that comes with the sun above the horizon. Both the setting and the timing had been arranged by Carl Rove and the White House communications aide Scott Forza, um, the dramatic step there that was intended. It was a triumph triumphant moment for bush uh but um you know uh, i suppose uh dark clouds uh w- w- were were gathering um that, that he did not uh know about or uh, and and anticipate and then um uh, d- during this time and uh um, not only Saddam Hussein fled, but Saddam Hussein was also uh, captured as well. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a fascinating time to think think back on with regards to the Iraq War and the, the sort of two thousand December two thousand and three with the capture of Saddam Hussein and <laughs> just this the, the iconic image of, of of we got him and um. How that that became a meme in the, in the following years and uh, decade ahead. Um, so that that kind of leads us nicely up to so the end of the, this podcast, which has been dealing with nine eleven, the Iraq War, the Afghanistan War, and how things have been playing out, not just with those events, but with how George Bush has taken them on, and then with how the the public and the media have have reviewed those and have. Um, either fought against it or um, sort of taking it in stride and sort of taking on, on the message of the Bush White, Bush White House. So sort of final question then, which I can, for all of us to just kind of talk through a little bit, is to just talk a little bit about how heading into the 2004 election, the, the impact um, that the 9-11 and then the subsequent war on terror, how much it had on... George Bush being able to defeat John defeat John Kerry in the 2000 election and um, win a second term. Um, before I ask you guys this, I'll just kind of say my piece, and that is that when I was thinking back about this from my own perspective, um, before doing some further research on this, I hadn't really thought about it in terms of um, anything other than this was a kind of a positive for George W. Bush. And he was basically able to, to ride um, this wartime presidency and the, the sort of sentiments of this post 9-11 America um, as, as kind of the, the wave that took him to victory and something that was able to unite the right and the center right um, to a very high turnout. And it, in fact, it's the only time that the Republicans have won um, the popular vote in America 
in the last, basically last 30 years. But when I was reading it a bit more, I did, I did see some, read some articles from those on the right and Cato Institute and, and things like that, who argued that actually the, the war in Iraq and how unpopular it was um, actually did uh, negatively impact George Bush and it rallied the, the left and those against the war in a way um, that it might not have been the case otherwise, and that um, George W. Bush basically had a sort of fight against this this unified um, anti-war movement um, that made life difficult for him and made the re-election um, more of an uncertainty than it would have been otherwise. It's not something I necessarily agree with, and I I, I still kind of hold on to the, the, this idea that um, the wartime president and the the sort of um, elongated process of, of the, these post 9-11 feelings. I, my memory of it, although I was obviously very young at the time and from the stuff I'd read um, about it subsequently, I, I, I do think it, it falls within that. And I, I don't, we've commented on on this before in the podcast that, you know, 2004 was, was the post 9-11, it was the, the Iraq war election. And although there were other things going on and the, the talks about, you know, sort of, uh, movements against gay marriage and that kind of thing. Um, I, I do think that the Iraq war and the post 9-11 feeling within America and this wartime presidency, I, I do think it, it very much helped uh, George W. Bush and uh, rallied um, uh, a large portion of the country around him in a way which might not have been the case otherwise, considering the economy wasn't particularly good at this time. And um, he obviously had some uh, his sort of own popularity issues, um, maybe outside of, of, of the stuff directly re- revolving around the uh, the war on terror. So, Toby, you got any any thoughts on this? Uh, no, I would say that I think you're right. I, I you know I don't I don't understand um, th- those arguments because this was the Iraq War election and not only was the Iraq war election if you look in 2002 the 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 republicans actually gained seats mm-hmm. like what, what, when does an incumbent yeah administration gain seats in the midterm uh even popular <laughs> administrations you know like the obama administration mm-hmm. to extent um and the clinton administration both of were eviscerated at midterm elections right they gained seats at the, at the midterms so clearly um the american and you could see it in bush's polling during this period you know going from september 11th to september the 14th to the the Af- afghanistan attack to polling supporting the, the the iraq war conflict uh bush was riding a popular wave you know um um and he was very popular and then in the first debate with with Kerry, that you know both, I mean, even before the first debate, both Kerry and Edwards voted for the Iraq War, and they would have been uh, surplus to uh, requirements if they yeah. hadn't voted for the Iraq War. They probably couldn't have been the candidates. And then in the first debate, Kerry's making the argument that he can run the war better than Bush can. So Bush sets the terms of the election and, and the debates, and he's riding a popular wave that the parameters of these debates are set by Bush and what Bush is doing. And Kerry just has to show that 
he could be a better Bush. So I don't I don't know what those those people are talking about. If they're gaining seats in the midterm election and they're setting the parameters in, in within the election, I I think, I mean, I'm I'm quite supportive of your point. I think it, you know, I I think it was very positive at this time for the Republicans. And 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 the, although like at this time in 2004, Fallujah starts to get bad, right? So do you have the defeat of the Saddam administration? You had the the capture of Saddam, but now. Uh, rebel pockets all over Iraq are starting to uh, clearly define themselves against this hostile um, invading army and starting to attack. And then, you know, you know, you're, you're starting to get the the uh, balkanization of Sunni and Shia, all this, all these, the precursor of things that Bush didn't even know about because he didn't know what the difference between Sunni and Shia was at the time. Are starting to percolate and things are starting to go a little bit bad but the american public is really seeing the mission accomplished bush they're really seeing the success of afghanistan they're seeing the the, the unprecedented success uh, in, in 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 iraq uh in the months before and that is what the the, the american public is really uh seeing and i think it's why Bush uh, manages to win the popular votes uh, across a, a, a period from uh, 1990, well, 1992 to today, the whole of my life, where the Republicans have not been able to win the popular vote. So I don't know what they're saying. Yeah, the, the article I was referencing was actually written in 2004. Um, oh, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, um, Christopher A. Uh, <laughs> Webb, uh, and he wrote, "Were it not for the war in Iraq, political junkies could have gone to bed early on election night because, by all other indications, President Bush would have been re-elected in a walk." Now, it is the Cato Institute, and we should always take libertarians with a pinch of salt, or you know, drown them in a bath of salt. But I still still think that's an interesting viewpoint to to consider. Um, Vaughn, any, any thoughts on on this last point? I, I find it interesting, as both of you said, that, that there, of course, there would be some opposition. There were people who were against the war. There were a lot of people who were against the war. Um, there were also a lot of, like, celebrities and specifically musicians against the war. Um, I know that we've talked about Green Day uh, and their yep. kind of... Um, leading response in folk music against the war almost in a kind of comparison to Vietnam uh, and the the anti-war movement music that came out of that. So there were definitely voices against it and prominent voices against um, the wars in the Bush administration. But I don't think enough to cause an issue on election night. I think I think Bush was going to win. Um, so like, I find that an interesting take, but I do, I agree with you guys that I think this was quite a clear win for him. Um, people wanted stability. You don't, uh, mm -hmm. it's very uncommon for such a tragedy to happen, such as 9-11, and then for war to erupt in multiple regions 
and then the people to want to destabilize their government by changing leaders. It's it's quite uncommon unless they really, really are um, having like a national response to it, a negative national response. So maybe a lot of this is retrospective and from a, a knowing place with what has happened in the last, what, 18 years since that election. But um, I agree with you both. No, uh, Vaughn is right. Like, so it's almost like a quasi-political science law, although political science has no laws, that you know, if, you, if you're a wartime president, people want stability. Was, was what they want and i think yeah. it's, that's how it played out although of course like i think it was like 73 percent of people who were against the war and voted voted for Kerry. so there was some mm-hmm. uh, although like <laughs> Kerry was for the war it's like, and you know obviously john Kerry actually has quite an interesting history because you know he was part of the the i think vietnam veterans against the vietnam war and in you know back then he was quite a solid uh almost like a peacenik but he, he'd, he'd been transformed in this time but really i think that i think bush was really running on the war he was he was delivering speeches and eager to talk about you know uh, being a wartime president and you know being on on uh you know um you know that his mission accomplished uh, work and, and and all of this and even during the election uh bin laden went on to mock uh, bush's reading of the pet goat while uh, the twin towers um were smoldering mm-hmm. um and uh in 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 some tapes and um and you know that was so it was really it was bush really running as a hero figure, you know, and uh, and running against Bin Laden, uh, r- running as the 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 not only the, the pro war candidate because everyone was a pro war candidate, but as the person who was steering the ship and the as a hero, it was almost like a modern Theodore Roosevelt or modern FDR. He was, you know, that that was what he, he was, and I and I and I feel that's why that's why he was. Uh, that's why he was success- successful, but I, I don't know. God, we're just tripping over ourselves with modern FDRs. We've got one in the White House right now. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> hey, uh, uh, he's a domestic FDR. He's not really, he doesn't like war. You know, he stays out of Afghanistan, he stays out of Ukraine, he doesn't like war, but he's, he's doing yeah, that, he's that like, new deal. You know? Yeah, he's that first term FDR. Like there's so many, so many different FDRs that you can have in different terms. Um, yeah, I know we're all kind of agreeing on this broadly, Toby. But if you could please refrain from ever saying the phrase "Vaughn is right," I don't think that sits uh, well with any of us. Um, Sometimes she just forces it on me. You know? <laughs> it's so right, it's just terrible. <laughs> just oh, I know. I try, um, but yeah. <laughs> One point, just on something you said, there, Vaughn. Uh, around the kind of celebrity reaction to this, which was strongly against uh, the the Iraq War, and I, I do actually vividly remember uh, Martin Sheen. I think it might be like the Emmys or something like that. Uh, he was doing a red carpet walk, and he basically spoke into camera, and he was like, "This is the president of the United States speaking. We must not go to war in Iraq, and all this kind of stuff." And um, yeah, it was it was just that, that that's what was that's what celebrities were doing at the time. They were they were 
they they were speaking out against this this war in Iraq, and you know you had the, the Dixie Chicks getting you know basically destroying their careers because um, people on the right didn't want them politically speaking up. So yeah, the, there's a whole. I mean, we we've touched touched upon it before with like Green Day and that kind of stuff, but there is a whole um, kind of series you could do a, around how. Uh, political media and how non-political media, quote-unquote, um, handled the uh, post-9-11 and Iraq war time period and how celebrities um, used their voice to, to speak out against it or in, in certain cases to, to back the troops, quote-unquote. It's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing that we could probably get into in a whole separate podcast. Yeah, it was, re- it was a really, really weird time, I think. Um... Yeah, so, you know, it's it's like even like um, left wing uh, radio shows like Air America was w- started, but they were sp- very left wing, mm-hmm. as in like um, uh, someone like the comedian Janine Garofalo used to come on um, the the, t- the TV shows, and they used to get her to go on there, and um, as just like this kooky left wing voice. Because all the center left people were pro the war, you know, and it just so just shows you like you know it's things have changed so significantly, and um, the Bush administration were were really although you know obviously there was this refutation in um, on the in uh, on the level of the UN and even amongst people close to to Bush like. Uh, administration figures from hw bush and colin powell himself although colin powell did the most work <laughs> to, get, to get in the war um yeah it, they, the bush administration really managed the, the public relations of this really well and and were very successful there was, there was only like kooky lefty lefty celebrities and lefty comedians and strange left-wing um radio stations where they were mm-hmm. really going up against this you know this is this is the the time of the height of the the the, the Chomsky paraphernalia by lefties, right? Oh, Chomsky, he's the one. You know, you get manufacturing consent. He's the one who's going to um, come out against the the Bush administration because there just there wasn't a space between Bush and then you know anyone. There's no there wasn't there's no Joe Biden was for the war. Hillary Clinton was for the war. There isn't that space. So the world today, we feel that we can get, critique the Democratic administration, that, and we are to some extent connected to the Democrats. You know, as much as we would like to defend, to distance ourselves from from them. At that time, there just no was no room between in that space at all. It was just all pro-war. You know, so it's very different to think about, really. Now. I said, I, you know, for, for me, it's almost like between like 92 and the, the election of Obama, it was like, it's, it's such a strange place. Maybe the, the, the Clinton stuff was like the precursor to this, but it's such a strange mm-hmm. place in terms of politics. It's like, it's like I have nothing to really like attach myself to in the terms of like the mainstream political discussion it's just like everything is yeah. Just wrong you know? it, yeah it's kind of hard because you basically there, there's kind of nothing good being done in politics from 92 onwards or i mean you could say that about any point of kind of the last you know century but it, it really does feel like 
when we were talking about the Bill Clinton presidency, there was I never at no point during that where we're going, wow, Clinton was great, wasn't he? Look at all the good stuff he's doing. Um, <laughs> and of course you get that with George W. Bush. It's not like we we can kind of look back and go, right, okay, well, you know, he invaded Iraq and he instru- destroyed the global economy. But, you know, man, his paintings, they were they were pretty good, weren't they? Um, At least you know, he also ruined education, right? <laughs> I bet I was compassionate there. Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, I don't. I fear us going into the third hour if we set Vaughn off on education. Yeah, um, no, I'm not doing that. So, um, this is us kind of taking up to sort of 2004, and um, George W. Bush, of course, won re-election and um, had a very unpopular um, next four years up until the point where Barack Obama came along. Um, our next episodes. Um, on George W. Bush, we're hoping to have a, a special guest on to, to talk about um, a film, which will dive in, into um, some of the uh, financial fallout around 2008 and um, the um, just absolute shit show that was happening around there. Um, so that is kind of like a, almost a special episodes in and around the George W. Bush era and the, the financial um red tape cutting that had been going on and the 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 destruction of, of the housing market that uh, really did um just absolutely plank america um so that's that's coming up um on our next episode and then we have a future episode coming up um where we'll be talking about more on the actual george w bush presidency itself and talking about some of the stuff that we haven't covered so far and uh, we'll no doubt touch upon just the kind of where iraq and afghanistan was at, as George W. Bush left, and of course, as we, we, we know, the, these wars continued long after George W. Bush had left the, the White House. So we still have quite a bit to go on our, our George W. Bush series, and we will no doubt talk about a number of different things. But this kind of wraps us up with regards to um, kind of a general talk on, on 9-11 and, and post-9-11, uh, the wars and, and some of the media that was happening at that time. It's entirely possible that at some point in the future we will come back and maybe look more specifically at, at some of the, some of the media representation that was happening, which we've kind of touched upon um, a little bit in other episodes because there's a lot of stuff there and a lot of really interesting um, sort of ways we could dive into that. But uh, we'll we'll kind of leave that for today. And uh, yes, we hope to have in a couple of weeks' time we hope to have a, a new episode for you guys, which I think uh, should be really fun and be an interesting way to to dive into the financial crisis. But uh, and, until then, um, my voice is going. Um, so we will say goodbye. And uh, hopefully, as I said, have another episode for you in the near future. So from Toby, from Vaughn, and from myself, Simon, thank you very much for listening. Take care. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.